This morning, we start a new series, and so our reading will come from 1 John chapter 1. Please turn there in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 1. I was listening along with a couple of our Sunday school classes, our adult classes. We have one in the Gospel of John. It certainly goes right along with uh, 1 John. And then in our doctrines class, we're talking about both the deity and humanity of Christ. And many passages from 1 John were quoted there as we see the emphasis on 1 John. So our new series starts off in the epistles of John. We'll be looking at 1 John. Five chapters there, and then Second John and Third John as well. So I encourage you to uh, to read through during the week. Uh, use this as a time of uh, meditation on God's Word, and you can follow along right with us in our series. I should also mention that if you uh, have access to the internet, our sermon series are. Uh, kept on the internet so you can have access to those messages perhaps those who uh, aren't in attendance here uh, who cannot attend uh, you can use your computer or your smartphone to uh, to have them listen to the message and uh, take advantage of the uh, uh, technology that we have if you'd like to know how to do that the person asked really isn't me but you can ask uh, <laughs> Lawrence he's ducking down now He'll tell you how to do that. <laughs> all right, First John, let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's word. If you don't have your own Bible, ushers have Bibles available. They'll bring one to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. First John, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. May God give us understanding through this reading and the preaching of his word this morning. If you would remain standing, let's bow in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. It allows us to be living today, to be able to come into fellowship, to see each other, to come into your presence and to hear from you, from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just bless this time together. As we're gathered here, quiet our hearts so that we might hear what you have to say to us and that we might um, be challenged, to be encouraged, um, to walk in obedience to your truth as your people should do. So. We pray um, that you would help us understand your word and live it out in our lives. We pray for those who could not be here today, um, some uh, just under different uh, health issues and sicknesses. We just pray that you would watch over and bless. Um, we think of Sister Minnie Kathy, that you would um, bless her, that you would help her in her challenge and her struggle and that you would provide comfort and encouragement to her heart as she will continue to trust in you. 
We thank you for Sister Lola Spears being here today. And the, the, we know, Lord, there's a continual struggle with her and her health as well. We just pray that uh, her heart, her mind would be stayed on you, that you will continue to uh, encourage her in, and uh, that she'll continue to trust in you. We pray for her family, Lord, that uh, you would allow her to be a testimony to her family. I know that's her prayer and desire, and we pray that along with her. We pray for my dad and his uh, continued uh, challenge and his, his uh, illness, and we just pray that you would watch over him and be with him. Encourage his heart, Lord. It's hard for those who can't be at service all the time, and uh, we sometimes take for granted being here and don't always take full advantage of, of when we can be here. Sometimes we make flimsy excuses as to why we shouldn't be here. But there are some who can't be here because of their health. And we do pray for them, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts. Use us to be an encouragement to them um, during this, this time. And so, Lord, we pray for, uh, for just this congregation in general. As we go through this series, oh Lord, I pray that you would help me to be a testimony for you. I pray, Lord, that you would just strengthen uh, my, my resolve, my zeal, my passion for you, um, strengthen my testimony, my walk for you before others, and allow me to be a, a testimony that brings glory to you. I pray that also for each of us, Lord, as we hear your word. I pray that you would help us to discern where we are and to know where we should be, and then to be encouraged to to grow and to make those steps where we ought to be individually and as a church. So we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as our choir comes to special music. Good time to, um, to get started with us in a new series right from the beginning. So if you um, have not gone through a series with us, um, we welcome you. God's word is our life. It shows us what life is all about. It shows us who our Savior is. And so we encourage you to immerse yourself in God's word and to learn it um, as a whole, you know, we start off just learning bits and pieces. I think about how children learn how to speak. They learn just little short syllables and then words and then phrases and then sentences. And before long, you can't shut them up. But it's bits and pieces at a time. I think about how I learn an instrument, just learning how to buzz my lips and make a tone, and then a note, and then a phrase, and then a song, and then a compliment to a song, and so forth. And so it's a step at a time that we uh, learn God's word. And so we want to see how this fits into the whole of God's word. God's word is a unity. It, it, is, it is one. And it speaks, reveals God himself and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at 1 John and how it does that. I want to just mention a few preliminaries in, in kind of an introduction to 1 John, but I'm not going to do that in, in a in a scholarly way necessarily because um, this is not school, it's church, and I want to, to not only teach God's word but preach God's word and to challenge and encourage your heart with it. So with that in mind, there's some things that would be good for us to know and understand as we start off in this uh, book of 1 John. I call it a book because it's one of the books of the Bible but it falls into the category of an epistle or a letter. It is a letter. And so there's the first part, it's 1 John, five chapters, then 2 John and 3 John, which you probably don't hear from very much, but we'll be going through those too. There's just one chapter each, and we'll look at, at those in our series as well. 
But who is, is the writer? The writer is John the Apostle, the Apostle John. He is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. We're going through that in Sunday school class, in one of our adult Sunday school classes. And so John was one who was a disciple of Jesus, who was an apostle, who was part of the inner circle of apostles uh, to, to, to Jesus. In other words, he had a unique view of Jesus. He was there in that close-knit group, and you can see that in various ways um, in the Gospels. He was there at the Transfiguration. Uh, this John was nicknamed the Beloved. He was the one that was said of him whom Jesus loved. Now, that's a unique nickname, and uh, just like all nicknames, you've got to be careful about uh, how far you go with that. Jesus loved all his apostles, all his disciples, uh, but he had a special uh, uh, um, connection and, and for John. And so John was unique, but you'll notice in the Gospel of John, and in this epistle of John, John is a very humble person. He doesn't speak of himself uh, much at all. In fact, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult for us to see references uh, to the writer, uh, but we do see them in John, and uh, uh, we carry that on through, through 1 John. So he's not stuck on himself. He, he's going to speak the truth. John was the, we notice there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they were written kind of from a uh, 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 same point of view. They were written early in, in, the, uh, um, in, in the time. John wrote later, much later after those three Gospels were written. So he didn't feel a need to repeat everything that they had, uh, and so he wrote, um, uh, in some ways, a unique perspective. I always say this, the gospel kind of give us different camera angles on Jesus. It's not a different gospel. There's one gospel, one truth of the life and death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry, um, but we get a couple different camera views and angles that help us see and understand and appreciate this Jesus. Uh, I mentioned John's unique position. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we're going through. And he also wrote Revelation. And uh, so that uh, puts him uh, in a unique category of scripture writers. He had great experience with Jesus. He stood at the cross during Jesus' crucifixion. Not all the disciples were there, but John was there. It was John who Jesus referred to when he said, take care of my mother. He said that on the cross to John. I want you to care for her. Jesus was dying on the cross, and yet he cared for his mother. Um, and he handed her off to John. John, would you take care of her? And so John, in fact, was special uh, in the eyes of Jesus. <clears throat> he was also a witness, along with Peter, to the empty tomb after the resurrection of Jesus. He was one who went there personally and viewed the things that were there to see. He also, after Jesus' resurrection, ate breakfast along with a few other disciples with Jesus at the seaside um, after his resurrection. Now, I say all this to, to, to back up what we get into in the first few verses of 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, I am an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I was there from the start of his earthly ministry. I saw it firsthand. I experienced him up close and personal. So in essence, John is saying, there may be people who claim to have stories about Jesus but I have it firsthand, and I'm going to speak that from which I know 
and I have experience. So John isn't boasting. He's simply telling the truth. If you want to hear the truth, go to the ones who were close to the source, and none were closer than John himself. John also was the last of the apostles to die. He was the last living apostle, the last to die. By the way, all of the apostles died in giving their life. They were, they were killed for the sake of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. John himself also. He was the last of the living. And so while he wrote late um, in the uh, first century, you believe it's any time from 70 A.D. to uh, 95 or 100 A.D. would be the time of his writing. All the other Gospels had been written at that time. And so John was writing saying, firsthand, I'm still alive. I know exactly what happened. Let me report to you those things that I have seen firsthand. <clears throat> he says, in verse 1, concerning the word of life. In his gospel, he calls Jesus the word. He said the word was manifest, it was made known, it was revealed to us. And to, here he says the word of life. He is the communication from God that brings and gives life. In John the Gospel, he says all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He says that Jesus himself is the creator of all things. That in itself is, 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 is humongous. It's a huge truth that God the Father is known as the creator, and yet Jesus Christ is spoken of as the creator as well. He is then spoken of on equal with God because he is God. He says he is the word of life. Life comes from him, literally comes from him. He spoke into existence life, and so life exists. And he also brings into existence eternal life. There is none that can live eternally apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John, in his epistle, emphasizes, among other things, three basic Christian, three basics of Christian life. I want to use one word to reference those three, each three, and we'll see how that word flows through his epistle. The first word is believe. We come to faith in Jesus Christ as we believe or trust in his death and in his resurrection on our behalf. Believe, trust. The second word is obey. John makes a connection between believe and obey. In other words, he's saying, if in fact you truly believe, your life will show the evidence of that belief. There is no such thing as a person who believes who does not in fact live out the principles of that belief. They are phony if they say they believe and live a different way. The third word that's prevalent in this epistle is the word love. Love. Believe or trust, obey, and love. And again, he uses the word love to show it as one of the fruits, one of the distinguishing characteristics of those who believe. Those who truly believe live or obey God, and they show that in their love for God and their love for each other. That is a prominent theme 
in 1 John. And so uh, we, we, we see these three basics of Christian life is to trust or believe, to obey, and to love. And he, what John does as he goes through the epistle <coughs> is not written in an outline form, in an argument form. It's written more in a letter, uh, almost a, 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 a brief a sermon. And so what John does is you'll see this. He'll, he'll gently touch on a theme and then grab onto something else and later come back to that theme again. And so we'll see that theme of, of what it is we are to believe and why it is we are to trust Jesus. Um, and, and he'll touch on that and, and mention a few things and later uh, come back to that again. He'll talk about obedience and its place in our lives and, and uh, how that is a fruit of, of a true believer. And he'll touch on that. He'll look at that from a different point of view uh, uh, and come at it again. And he'll look at love in that same way, bring it up again. So as we transition through the different chapters, we'll see those themes touched on in different ways and, and, and a lot of repetition as well uh, as we go through. So keep those three words in mind, trust, believe, love. We'll see that as identifying what the Christian life really is and what it looks like. I want to talk about the purpose of First John. What was his purpose? Why? What did he want people to, to, to realize and to know or to do? Two things that, that I want to mention uh, primarily as his purpose, and they're both connected. Um, there's two groups or two sets of people that John is addressing. One is those who profess to be believers. Profess means to say, to tell, to speak. They talk, sometimes a good talk. He's speaking to that group, and he's also speaking to a group of true believers. Now notice the distinction. We have those who profess to be believers and those who are true believers. John speaks to both of those groups. To those who profess to be believers, John identifies a number of traits that really point out whether or not a person is a believer or not. John is going to say, if you are a believer, you will have this or look like this or do this. You will not do this. You will not look like this. So he's basically calling out people who profess. We say it this way, talk is cheap. A lot of people do a lot of talking. They, they, know, they know how to speak, Christian speak, and, and act in front of you like they uh, are living a certain way. John isn't impressed with that, neither is, neither is the Lord Jesus Christ. With people who merely profess to be Believers. We need to recognize them in our midst that we're going to have both of those types. I recognize as I speak to you in this room are both those groups. There's individuals who may profess to be believers. They may even be connected with the church for years and years and years. There are individuals who profess to be believers. And then there are true believers. So John gives a number of tests to people so that they can look and judge for themselves. You know, we, we got this issue in society today that says, don't judge me. You need to judge yourself because others will and properly do judge you. They should. In fact, John is giving them the things to judge by and the things for you to judge yourself. So John is saying, for those who profess to be believers and are not genuine believers, I want to make you very uncomfortable. 
Not just for the sake of embarrassing you or making you feel uncomfortable, but because what's at stake is so important, John cannot allow you to continue in a blindness thinking you're okay when you're really not because you don't measure up to God's standards. Not something I'm making up or someone else wrote down. This is what God says his people look like. So John has a purpose of making those who profess to be Christians, making them, uh, giving them tests where they can judge for themselves whether or not they stand up to the test. And in essence, making them very uncomfortable with a flimsy profession of faith. So since that's the Holy Spirit's intention with 1 John, I certainly want to make it my intention as well. But then there's a second part. He speaks to true believers. And his purpose in speaking to true believers in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, you can see his stated purpose there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to build confidence and assurance in those who are true believers. If you're a true believer, you, you, have, you have at times doubted. You have at times questioned you're standing with God. You have at times uh, been leery of, of where you are in your standing with God as to, to your, 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 your walk and, and, and how he receives you. And what he wants to do to that group of individuals is to assure and build confidence in them so that they could rest not in themselves or their achievements or things they say, but rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has a, a twofold purpose is to make those who are content uncomfortable, <laughs> those who are squirmish about their faith, but are truly believers to build their confidence and their assurance on God himself. I found in my experience is that if I am confident in myself, that confidence is not worth much. But if I am confident in the Lord, I have great confidence and great reason for confidence. <coughs> so John has that as his purpose. I, the, the first statement, I didn't show you verses on that, but we'll get to verses. In fact, in the, in the very first chapter, he's, when I said he, he takes those who merely profess to be believers, look what he says in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That's a strong statement. He says, this is what I got from Jesus himself, and this is what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you something that's coming from my own mind. These aren't my words. This is the message from Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say, he starts with an if and a say, a profess. If one is to profess that they have a relationship with God and don't match up, is what he's saying, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. John, John is, is not cutting any, any, any corners here. He's putting it very plainly. He, he, he doesn't say, well, uh, perhaps you may not be telling the truth. He said, no, you lie. If you say this and do this, then clearly your life is a lie. Starts off with that. So his, his, his message to those who simply profess to be believers is to give them tests to see the genuineness of their faith or the lack of genuineness 
of their faith. We see that in 6 and 7. I'll read 6 again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you can see that twofold purpose is, is fulfilled, is put there right in the front, is that those who merely profess are going to have, in essence, the rug snatched out from under them. Those who, who are true believers but um, have some doubts and questions, he's going to, to, to point them and build their confidence, not in themselves, but in their Savior. Notice what he says the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. I want to just browse through First John. I want to look at some of the emphasis that he mentions. In fact, um, let's start right here in verses 1. Of verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, the word say, if we say. The second comes up in verse 7. But if we walk, if we walk, he's speaking of uh, what it means to, to believe, <laughs> what it means to actually trust in Jesus, And he uses different terms throughout his epistle to help us understand that. So I want to walk through some of those terms. The first one is to say. Those who are, are, are truly saved, let the redeemed of the Lord, the psalm says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But the fact is a lot of, a lot of ones who say so ain't redeemed. <laughs> so saying by itself is not good enough. Those who are redeemed ought to say but just saying is not enough. In fact, what John points out is there has to be, there must be a connection between what we profess in our belief of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we live. And that's where the second word walk comes in. When he talks about our walk, he's talking about how we live on a daily basis. He says, but if you walk in the light... Talk about walk. Another uh, a term that's used to talk about our relationship with God is in chapter 2, verse 3. Come to know. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. <laughs> I like that. He says, here's how you know you've come to know him. People talk about knowing God, right? Coming to know God in terms of describing their relationship with God. So John uses that phrase. How do you know that you come to know God? How do you know that you know God? The word know has some, use a limited sense of that, is just an intellectual knowledge. In other words, if you're not an atheist, then you believe in God. That's a broad category, and people think that they're Christians because they're not atheists, and they believe in a higher power that does not make one a Christian. So he talks about coming to know God. How do you know? So some people think that mere intellectual assent of a truth is having a relationship with God. I believe God exists. Well, James says Satan believes he exists too, but he has no relationship that delivers him from judgment. And so he, he the Bible uh, helps us to uh, not count on those flimsy things that we take to, to, to know God. So knowing God, and throughout the, the, the epistle, you'll see that kind of language. Another term talking about our relationship with God is to be in him or him in us or to abide in him. Chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, he says it this way. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. 
Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. In him and abiding in him. That, 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 the, the, the language of being in Christ. I'm in him. Some people simply think because they're in a church, they're in Christ. Some people think because they bought an expensive Bible that they have a relationship with God. Some people think because they sing in a choir, they've been a member of the church for a number of years, that they are connected rightly with God. What does it mean to really have relationship with God? So he uses this phrase of in him or abiding in him. In chapter 3, verse 14, he uses this term, pass from death into life. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So he's using a legitimate um, test of being a true believer, his love for other believers. And he uses this phrase, we know that we pass from death into life. In other words, he's saying that's a description of what a true believer is. He's one uh, that has passed from death to life. It's interesting to talk to people who, who don't even know that they're dead who think they're alive. In other words, they, they had no sin to turn from that brought them to death for them to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for life. How do you know? How will you be 100% sure that you will go to heaven? Oh, uh, well, because um, I've been good. I said, been good compared to what? And said, so, well, you know what people normally say is, I compare myself to other people I know. My neighbors, my, my, my family, people I grew up with. You know, I don't do this, I don't do that, and I see other people who do it. In fact, I see people in the church who claim to be connected with God who do this and do that, but I don't do that. And so they think that they have... Uh, 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 um, accomplish what they need to accomplish. How do you know that you are a true believer? John says true believers have been passed from death to life. What that briefly means is that we knew that as we were sinners and we were on our way to hell, we knew that God's judgment was lingering over us. And that had we died before his grace appeared in our lives, we would have gone to hell. But his grace came down, opened our eyes, pointed us to a Savior, caused us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we passed from death to life. There's people who think that because they have some medical experience or they were in some kind of coma or knocked out or whatever, that they were in death and they woke up and now they're in life and they saw the light. You've heard those kind of stories before. They are basing a relationship with God simply on some experience, maybe an out-of-body experience or something that they've gone through, but it's not based on who Jesus is, his life, his death, his resurrection, and they're trusting in him. They think they passed from death to life, and so they're saved. Another phrase, believing in the name of his son. He uses that phrase. It's a legitimate phrase. If we apply it correctly in, in chapter 3, verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. In chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? And so believing, again, is said to be one of those things that we are to do. And, again, it's misunderstood. Many people think believing is simply saying something is true. Believing goes far beyond that. True belief is not just said in words. It's lived in our lives. And John points that out over and over again. Remember chapter 1, verse 6. If you say, if you say, if you profess, 
that you walk in the light. What does he say in verse 6? <clears throat> if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I want to point out a phrase that he uses over and over again in this, in this epistle that is significant and important and we ought to take to light. It's a term, I'll use this phrase in its different um, um, parts of it, but it simply means to be born again. To be born again. To be born again. He uses that phrase over and over again. Let's walk through a couple places where he uses it. In chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Have been born of him. He uses a part of that phrase, to be born of God. In other words, to have life from God. To be born of God. Why is this particular phrase so important? It's, well, first of all, because of he, how he uses it, its significance is that it's not just a person who says something. It's a person who has been given something by God. In other words, God has given life to that individual. In the natural world, a child is born but has no responsibility or, 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 or has can bear no responsibility for their own birth. Someone else made that happen. And so it is in the spiritual world. It is God who did a miracle in our lives to cause us to be born again. When you talk about being born, it's always in the passive sense. It's something that happened to me, not something I've done of myself. I was born, God gave me life, and I came to life. It's a mystery. It's, 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 it's something that, it's life itself, but when we examine it, we see it in the natural as well as the spiritual. God is the giver of life. It's always amazing to me whether it's a, a little puppy or a human being, that birth process is a miracle, and we know it is of God. Doctors and technology cannot reproduce that. And so it is spiritually. You and I cannot cause it to happen to ourselves. God brings us to life. That's why we glorify him for who he is. He's the one who has given us life. So John uses this phrase because Jesus used it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus was just floored. What do you mean? I've been going to school all my life. I've learned everything there is to learn about the Bible, about spiritual things, and now you tell me it's not something I can learn or something I can do. It's something that had to happen to me. Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see life. So John uses that very potent phrase. He says, be born of him. This is one case he uses in 2.29. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it's the same, it's the same idea, but phrased a little differently. Chapter 3, verse 1. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? Babies that came from God. Life that God has started. So now we are not just children. We are his children. We're children of God. We are those who are living as a result of the life that God has started in us. And we are identified with our maker, the one who gave us life. We are his, his we belong to him. Life has been given to us that is his life from him given to us. So it's that same thought of being born again. I invite you, if you're a true believer, when you speak to others, use biblical terms. Have you been born again? How do you do that? You don't. 
God does that. But let me show you what it looks like when God does it. It looks like a person who confesses themselves as a sinner, who recognizes the only remedy for that is the Lord Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and now has been convinced that that is their life and they believe in Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You, again, that phrase, children of, those who are by birth belonging to. And why we say born again is because that's a phrase used in John chapter 3. First of all, it means be born from above. This new birth comes after the natural birth. We are naturally born as children of Satan. Now, see, the world doesn't like that. They, 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 they want to call it a different thing. They put, you know, the world wants to say, all of us have good within us, and if it will just be brought, up and brought out in the process of time. And uh, there is some truth to that, but it's not saving truth. The fact is we were made in the image of God. The Bible tells us that. And so we respect each other simply because when I look at you, I see what God has made and brought into existence in the natural sense that I respect. But it doesn't mean saving for us. That we are not automatically connected to God by birth. We are God's creation because he created all things. But to be God's children, we have to be born again. Not just a natural birth, but the spiritual birth where God does a work within us to bring us to life. If you talk to people long enough, I always say this too, if I preach long enough, I can tell who's dead and who's alive. (laughs) you talk to some people and it's just like your spiritual things it's just no it's like glazed over like I don't know what you're talking about but I'm still listening Uh, but they they have the thing you can see that but if you've ever witnessed to somebody giving them the gospel if you've had the privilege I've had the privilege of seeing my children born when I was right there. Now, I can't take responsibility for that. Donna did all the work, right? Um, But I was there to witness it. And and it's, it's an amazing thing. If you've ever been there to witness when God does that, it's an amazing thing. What you see is, is this person is totally different now. Their responses are different now. They now have a desire, a hunger for spiritual things that they did not have before. You know how you know that? Because you've seen it in yourself. You've seen it in yourself. You've seen what God has done to you. That once you were determined in sin and now God has started life with you where you're thinking differently. Sometimes, you know, you're like, you look at yourself in the mirror and say, is this me? Did I say that? Did I now do that? Did, did, did I talk to this person this way? Did, did, did I respond this way? God has changed you. And you are, the Bible says, a new creation, a new individual. So he, 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 he uses this, this phrase in, in, in chapter 10 of, of verse, in chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and the children of the devil. In chapter 5, verse 2, he uses this phrase again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Has been born of God. Chapter 3, verse 9. Another place he uses it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Chapter 4, verse 7, he uses that phrase again. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, has been given life 
from God. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. He's talking about the children of God there, those who have been born of God. Verse 4 of chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Talking about those who, who believe in Jesus, and, and, and that's a synonym for those who are born again. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, speaking of Jesus now, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. A couple other phrases he uses. Um, he says, we are of the truth. In chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now what does that mean? We, we came from the truth. Who is the truth? God himself, Jesus himself is the truth. We came from, we are descendants of, he's saying, of the truth. Another phrase he uses is being from God. Chapter 4, verse 4, you with me? Little children, you are from God. That's an interesting phrase. You're from God because everything in this world wants to, wants to tie us simply to this world. We're teaching children in school now that they came as descendants from monkeys and apes. The Bible says you were created by God and when you spiritually came to know God, you were born and from him. Chapter 4, verse 6, just a verse down, it says, <clears throat> we are from God. Uses that phrase again, being from God. And in, in that same chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, he uses another phrase. Little children, you are from God and have overcome. For he who is in you, he who is in you. Use this phrase of, of God is living within us. That speaks really of the Holy Spirit and his work there. But he's using these terms to talk about what it means to have a true relationship with God. Not just to say, to learn church words and church speak, but to have a real, living, vital uh, um, relationship with God. Last thing I want to point out today <clears throat> the word gospel isn't in his epistles, but the gospel itself is all over. What do I mean by the gospel is all over? We know the gospel is that a person is brought from death to life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in his finished work on the cross. It's Jesus' death his crucifixion and his resurrection, and our faith in that as being on our behalf is what God uses to bring salvation to that individual. So that is the gospel, and this gospel is all over this short letter. Let's just take a, a, a few a quick glimpses of the gospel in 1 John. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. God is light. That's part of the gospel message that God is holy and he is distinct. If you're going to say God is light, you also know that then it says in that same verse, in him is no darkness at all. There's a distinction then between light and darkness. Light is spoken of that which is holy, that which is pure, that which is good and righteous, that which illuminates as to darkness, that which is evil, that which is wicked, that which hides God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In chapter 1, verse 7, 
We see this part of the gospel. Cleansing and forgiveness come by the blood of Jesus. When we say the blood of Jesus, some people think we, we, we just like gory talk. Speaking of blood, blood is there to speak of the death of Jesus. The blood on the cross is to show that not only was he injured, but he was killed. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 talks about him being killed for sinners, for those who would come to trust in him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, he was put to death in my place. Anyone who trusts in Jesus can say that. He was put to death in my place. And so we speak of the blood. We're speaking of the fact that Jesus paid for our sin by his life. He gave his life. He died on the cross for my sin. And so he says that in, in this way in, in chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John makes it clear, doesn't he? It's the blood of Jesus that brings cleansing. And it also brings forgiveness. In, in verse, uh, is it verse 9 there? He says, yes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing then comes by trusting in Jesus and confessing to him, confessing that we are unfit of this salvation, for this salvation, and the only way we can get it is through his death. And his death does a cleansing, a washing of us. We thank God for that. We see that as the gospel in John. We also see that Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sin. In, in 1 John 2, 2, he says that. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is, is one of those theological terms. It means that he is the payment, the one and only acceptable payment. He's the payment that God accepts. So if you're going to go and get something from God, <laughs> you've you, you got to come with the right payment. You can't make up your own check and expect the bank to cash it. Even though you got a nice printer at home and a program that makes it all neat, the, the numbers don't match. It's not going to be acceptable payment. Jesus is the only acceptable payment that God would take. He is the propitiation. That same phrase is used again in chapter 4, verse 10. It says this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So it's not, you know, we gave life to ourselves. He said we weren't even loving God. It's God who started. He initiated it. He loved us and he sent his son to be the payment for our sin. So God the Father is active in our salvation in sending his son beforehand and the Holy Spirit is the one that woos us and draws us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all the act of God to bring us to salvation. So he has the gospel all over here. Speaking of Jesus as a propitiation. He speaks here several ways that trusting in Jesus brings eternal life. In chapter 2, verse 24, he speaks of it this way. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You'll abide in him. You'll remain in him. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He uses that word abiding. Um, but he talks about eternal life in chapter 5, verse 5, where he says this, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are to believe in him. Look at verse 11. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he speaks of eternal life there comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. So we get a good sense. There's a powerful message in the epistles in this writing that point and highlight the gospel and what we would call the transformative power of the gospel. And that is this. The gospel saves us and transforms our life. And so he's cautioning those who are mere professors, not possessors, but professors of this faith who say that they believe. He's saying you ought to look like this. What you say and what you live are going to line up and match up. And then he's encouraging that those who are true possessors of God's salvation, that they be encouraged, that God assures them that they have eternal life. Encouragement to one side, a strong caution to the other side. We see that consistent everywhere in the word of God. God gives a message of caution and warning, and God gives a message of hope and security for those who are trusting in Jesus. I ask you today, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you been born again? Have you come to the place where you realize that there's no other way for you to have right relationship with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and that you need to fully trust in him. I invite you today to trust in Christ. You can do that right now. You don't even have to come up front to do that. You can do that right where you are right now. It's important. This, this book that John Wright says, if you don't have Jesus, you won't have life. You won't have eternal life. As you bow your head right now, we're going to close our service, just close this message, first of all, by asking you to examine yourself. Do you have a relationship with God because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Has God given you life? Does your life match with what he says here it ought to look like? You can come and trust Christ right now, right where you are. Would you be willing to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm unworthy of anything you would do to save me. I'm in awe of what Jesus did, recognizing he died on the cross to pay for my sin. I thank you for that. I believe that. And I trust that you secure my eternal life because of what Jesus did. You said you did, and I take you at your word. So save me right now. And you said that my life would be transformed. It would be changed. I would live in a different way. I want you to do that work in me now. In Jesus' name I pray. If you meant that as you prayed that today, God has brought you to that point to put your faith in him. I thank God for that. I love to hear that you said that, prayed that, and meant that and want to grow in Christ. If you're a believer, you've done that already. You recognize that God wants your life to line up with what his word says, and he will cause it to. And submit to him. Walk in obedience to him. Tell God right now, that you want to obey him right now. You want to obey him. And I am absolutely positively sure he will give you the power.
power to live in obedience to him. We'll close in just a moment of prayer to give you some time to reflect. If you'd like to talk more about that, Donna, the back and to greet as we close this service. I'm going to ask Brother Cliff Hill if he closes out in the word of prayer.